Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Right now, you can watch Addicted to Fame, a movie that profiles the making of Anna Nicole Smith's last film, available the same day that it hits theaters. Also available is The Central Park Five, available on demand during its theatrical release. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. York City. This is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Except I've been meaning to tell you, Matt, that this whole time you've known me, I've actually in reality been a 40-year-old French con man lying about my identity in order to find a podcast to serve as a loving home I always wanted. And as a place for us to discuss Bart Layton's documentary, The Imposter. I always thought there was something strange about your accent. <laughs> California, my foot. Later, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. In honor of The Imposter, we thought we'd take a look at some other uses of reenactments in film and TV. But that led us to watching hours and hours of America's Most Wanted. After which we decided, you know, maybe we'll just look at some more of this year's new releases available on streaming and rental sites. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD and give you a rundown of a few other notable films on demand on cable. Matt, what's our first pick this week? Our first pick this week is a very interesting film entitled King Kelly, which is directed by Andrew Neal. And this would probably be described as a found footage movie, although technically this footage, I think, was never lost. We might need to come up with a new name for this sort of thing. <laughs> Is it a POV film? Is it a camera phone film? Is it a yeah. first-person film? I don't know. We, I, don't, I don't know if found footage is accurate, but that's because, probably what it, it is. I mean, like, the character who's shooting it intends to use it. There's right. never any doubt that, like, this footage will be stored away somewhere to be discovered. Right. So anyway, it's technically a found footage movie because every single shot in the movie is recorded by the characters on screen. And there's a certain sort of uh, formal rigor to the gimmick in this movie. Um, I don't know if we've ever talked about it on the podcast before, Elson, but I know we've talked about it with other people. How frustrated I get with found footage movies that cheat with the gimmick. A good example recently would be the film End of Watch, which I liked. It was an interesting movie. Had some very good lead performances from the two main actors. But they established this found footage gimmick where one of the characters is making a film for a film studies class about his day job as a cop. So he's got some handheld cameras, he has some cameras on his lapels, and they establish all this in the very first scene. In the very next scene, they just throw it all right out the window. There's cameras everywhere. There's got to be 20 angles in that next scene, which happens in like a briefing room. And I'm sitting there going, you just went into all this trouble to explain what we're about to see and set up the rules. And it didn't take you 30 seconds to break it. That drives me crazy. I don't know if you feel the same way, Allison, but I hate that. Yeah. In, the, in this case, though, we've got a movie that is really rigid about it and kind of believable, too. The main character is this self-obsessed young woman. I don't know if they ever say her age, but she's still living at home. She's probably like, late teens, yeah, early 20s. I would guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she owns her own or she works in a porn chat room where she performs sex acts on herself for tips from guys who are watching online. She calls herself King Kelly. She has this whole sort of persona about herself. Uh, and then on this one particular day, which I think is not coincidentally the 4th of July, uh, the whole world, her whole world starts to fall apart. In her spare time, Kelly works as a drug mule for a local dealer. 
And when a friend takes back her car, which is really his car that she sort of borrowed permanently, uh, it's got drugs inside that she needs to deliver to someone. So she has to set off with a friend on this crazy day and night of partying and searching for the drugs and taking other drugs and constantly filming themselves while they do it and then uploading the videos they shoot to Facebook and then filming the reactions to those videos when they're posted on Facebook and people comment on them on Facebook. It's like this crazy kind of uh, feedback loop. Uh, Most found footage movies use the gimmick as a gimmick. You know, it adds realism or immediacy, like in the case of End of Watch. I think it's there more to do nothing more than to just really lend this sort of like documentary-esque sense of realism to it in the case of king kelly it's a gimmick as social commentary basically about this generation of kids who are obsessed with their phones and i don't think king kelly's nickname is an accident i think that she in her mind thinks of herself as like celebrity royalty you know and that's how she portrays herself on her uh, camera phone movies that she's constantly taking and i found the movie really interesting in that in its aesthetic in the way that it used the found footage thing to comment on this this generation of Americans who are so self-obsessed that it's, it's, you know, they're like destroying themselves little by little. Hi, this is King Kelly, and I had some crazy stuff happen to me last 4th of July. I made an awesome movie. It's my movie, and I'm about to be famous. Everything was going fine. I was about to launch my website. I was getting tons of fans from my online exotic dancing thing. Happy birthday. George Washington. Then my loser ex-boyfriend Ryan stole my car. My retarded sister Angela got all up in my business. Big drama. You have a real problem. My biffled Jordan got mad at me at Dean's Rager. It was her boyfriend, but nothing really happened. Oh my God. Jordan, it's not what you think. She got over it. Allison, I know you you saw the movie too. Did you like it? I did like it. And I think it also, it says something very interesting about how you can use the internet for a mirror for affirmation. Like you can always find people who will tell you, you know, that they like what you're doing or that they, you know, are a fan. Yes. I think depending on how you present yourself. The threshold for like being a, a great artist or a great celebrity is so low. Right. And so she is a, a pretty terrible person, but has gotten so much <laughs> kind of praise from this very narrow group of people she's found yeah. as her fan base that it's like created this kind of artificial sense of like confidence and entitlement. Yes. And it's really interesting how the film plays with that. Yes. And how kind of damaging it can be. Right. And yeah. how it, towards the end of the movie, without stripping it away, it sort of, it destroys that self-confidence. Yes. But at the end, there's this amazing monologue, too, where it almost like, re- like she like reaffirms her King Kelly-ness. Yeah. I love that last scene of the movie. I think it's one of the best scenes in any movie this year. Really. I've, I've seen it a few times, the movie. And I, I love that scene. So that's King Kelly. And it will be available on VOD starting on December 4th. Two more picks for you. These are both documentaries. I haven't had a chance to see either yet, but I'm really interested in seeing them. They both are very like highly acclaimed. So the first is Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry, which is Alison Clayman's documentary about the Chinese artist and activist. And it takes a look at his work over two years and his clashes with the government. And uh, this doc has gotten a lot of attention. It won the special jury prize at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. And it's... Uh, always very interesting to take a look at a figure particularly like this who's brought a lot of international attention to human rights issues in china and you know is also uh, an artist a very respected artist in his own right uh, so that is available on vod on december 4th and the other film is crazy horse which is uh, about the legendary parisian cabaret 
which uh, features nude dance shows, but has also kind of made itself a like, respectable tourist stop, you know, as the years have gone by as much as like your more typical uh, Parisian landmarks. But this is a film directed by the great Frederick Wiseman, who is really one of the most influential documentarians, uh, you know, out there. And it offers a behind-the-scenes look at the place, at rehearsals, and the development of a new show by a famous choreographer. And, you know, Wiseman is always really interesting at uh, when he documents process. So uh, I'm very intrigued by that. And that is available on VOD on December 11th. So we were debating a theme for Q Shots this week. We were kind of debating a few things. But then it, it seemed like... This is, you know, it's December now, Allison. It is. And, and at this time of year, especially early December, there's really one thing on any critic's mind, which is their top ten list. Seeing as many films as they can, trying to catch up with movies they've missed. And why pretend like we're interested in older films right now <laughs> when we're not, when we don't have the time to watch older movies, when we really need to keep watching newer stuff or thinking about movies that we've already seen and, and considering them again. So that's why we thought, since we're doing a new movie, this is a movie that was released earlier this year, The Imposter, that's our main listener's choice review, why not just talk about some other movies? And maybe before we get started, the one sort of general thing we can talk about is, do you have, and Allison, when you're making your list, do you have any rules when you're making rules? your top ten list, like, I need to have at least five foreign films, or I want to make sure that I have a, a couple of mainstream titles, or I want my tenth pick to be something no one would ever expect to see on a top ten list. I know people, I'm not saying you do, but yeah. I know people who have said all of those sorts of things to me. I want to have yeah. a mix of foreign and, and, and you know, U.S. films. I want to try to create a couple of things that you know, make people think like they, they have a very sort of didactic approach to a right. top 10 list. Other people are just like, these are my 10 favorite movies. And uh, that's it. Some people like to do an order one through 10. Some people prefer not to have an order. They have a alphabetical or whatever, just to try to make it more equal or something like that. So what about you? What, 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 how do you do it? How do you approach it? Do you have any rules? Uh, I definitely put them in order. I feel like if you don't put them in order, it's then cheating, why even right? bother? Yeah. yeah, it's totally, it's a cop out. <laughs> it, exactly. It sucks. I agree with you. It sucks to have to do. And yeah. right now I won't say watch two movies, but right now for my number one and two, I've got two candidates. And I have no idea. I still like every day I go back and forth as I'm looking at the list, as I'm watching new movies and I'm looking at my potential list. I'm going, which is going to be my number one. And I really don't know. And this year I, I could eat like if I was a cheater, I could have a one and one A or something. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, though. it's no good. I'm going to uh, have to come down. And the, the hardest part, though, is I don't know if I'm going to be able to see either one again before mm. the list. So that's going to be tough. Anyway, I'm sorry. Keep going. No, uh, I, I mean, I don't I don't have like a kind of I know some people who will go unmentioned, but who have like a uh, numerical systems like they keep throughout like as soon as they see a movie rate the movie yes. and that like puts that's how they do would do like a top 10 list would be basically on on that i'm not nearly so scientific or you know i i, I think my approach is pretty holistic like i look back at the year and kind of you know it's difficult when you've seen something sometimes like in like a year or two ago if at a festival right that's true you could have seen a film yeah. at can 2011 and it's eligible for uh top 10 list this year because right. generally the way that these things work is when the movie was released theatrically is when it counts for a top 10 list so yeah a movie could premiere at a festival a year ago you might not have seen it since then and you've got to weigh it against a movie you saw yesterday i mean that's tough that's yeah. not easy to do i mean i think i tend to end up with a relatively varied list but that's just i think because i see a lot of movies i am definitely going to top out 
200 new releases this year easily. You know, I think probably I'm going to come out around 250, uh, which is horrifying. But, um, you know, I, I think that just ends up including a lot of varied films. And I don't think, I think, you know, it reflects your taste, whether or not you skew like very mainstream, but I've never tried to like deliberately mix things up. Hmm. So All right. as, as we so. sit here on Sunday, December 2nd, You've got probably about a week before you have to submit to these to the polls. There's these national polls for the Village Voice and IndieWire. They come first, and then you know obviously you have to do your own type. Of, do you have like I was saying? I'm debating between two different films right now. Do you have a clear number one? Do you have? I a, haven't started yet. You haven't started. No, at all. I, there are a few other films that I want to watch before I start. I mean, I've had so you in certain years. I've had something skate in to take my number one spot that I saw very late in the year. But you don't have like a running list I at all. Not. You don't. No. You I know don't that keep you a do. list of contenders. You just go through the year and then. No, I'm going to take it like a you few sit hours down and one day sit down. and yeah. just go. Okay, and is, and how do you how do you determine what it's like? Whatever comes to your mind, how do you determine? Do you look back at what you've reviewed? How do you figure out? I look out? back at the year calendar, at you, the giant year calendar, and then I pull out stuff that I've scene that i know is a contender mm-hmm. and then i'll have like a list from there and then i'll start sorting but yeah, i don't know if anyone process. listening cares about this but i, I know find this, i find this absolutely fascinating <laughs> Which is, you do something very different you keep a list throughout the year right yes and yeah. it's not like set in stone but i do sort of keep a running list at least of like you know like these are the movies that are up for the top 10 and then as new movies come in i sort of move things down and then the, there's like an honorable mention list that doesn't necessarily mean that by the end of the like things can move around because i'll rewatch something and i'll go oh this is better than i thought or oh, this this doesn't really hold up to a second viewing so, but yes, I do sort of keep a running list, and I don't. I my memory is so bad. I don't know how I'd remember some of those movies that I saw at Fantastic Fest last year if I wasn't keeping a running list. So I don't know. That's how I do it. Anyway, I don't know that necessarily these new movies that we're talking about. At least in my case, there's a pretty good chance that none of these three are going to be up on my top ten list. Okay. However, I think these are all three very good movies, and I think they will wind up on some people's top ten list. So I think these are good movies to catch. I think these are good movies to see to be part of sort of the end of the year conversation uh all three of these movies will wind up on some top 10 lists yes i agree with my picks as well same thing okay well why don't you start give us your first uh new release okay my first new release uh is these are actually all three of mine are streaming on netflix okay uh, this is the deep blue sea uh it was originally a 2011 film that came out in the u.s in uh, 2012 directed by terrence davies of uh distant voices still lives the long day closes not to be confused with the Rennie Harlan movie in which a mutant shark eats Samuel L. Jackson mid-rants. This is an adaptation of a 1952 play by Terrence Radigan uh, that Davies has turned into this really kind of beautiful, uh, impressionistic uh, take on what's basically a love triangle. It's about a love triangle. It stars a terrific Rachel Weiss as the wife of a judge who falls in love with a younger man who was a pilot in World War II. He's played by Tom Hiddleston of, you know, Thor. Um, And she gives up this stable and very affectionate, if not particularly passionate, upper-class life uh, for for this young man who is, I think, in what's one of the most interesting things about the film, he is both like dashing, this dashing, attractive figure, and also clearly a very shallow one. And she's kind of consumed by him, but he does not love her in that way. So she gives up this life, goes to live in this rooming house with him, and is miserable in certain ways, but also can't stay away from him. So it portrays this really interesting this really interesting sense of like just being torn between 
what you know is the kind of sensible choice and then what is this very unhappy passion but like a, a passion that's irresistible nonetheless did you arrange something special just taking a bottle of claret I'm sorry. Come on. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I can't say any more, can I? No. You can't. Uh, and, you know, Vice really is pretty incredible in this. Uh, the film is very consumed with this certain era in, in, in England uh, after the war. And it's very, it's very much about these, like, tamped down emotions. But it is very, underneath that, there is this real sense of uh, emotional rawness, particularly since the film starts off with Vice's character attempting suicide um, and then flashes back and forth to fill out her situation and uh, how she ended up there. So that is The Deep Blue Sea, and it is available for streaming on Netflix. But no mutant sharks? No, though, I mean, maybe an after credits edition. Mutant Shark comes right. out and eats inter- everyone. I'm not interested then. I'm not interested then. No, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I've, I've heard great things about it. I think actually uh, Adam Kempinar from Film Spotting Original Recipe is a, is a big fan of that movie as well. And uh, I saw that it popped up on Netflix. That's one I've got to see before I finish uh, my own top 10 list. Okay. Mm-hmm. My first pick is Sound of My Voice. This is a good example of what you were talking about earlier, Allison. This film premiered at Sundance in 2011. So if you saw it there, but haven't had a chance to see it again. This is almost two years since you saw it. And uh, technically, it came out earlier this year in a theatrical release, so it counts as a 2012 film. It's directed by Zal Batmanglij, and it is available on Amazon Instant and iTunes, Vudu, YouTube, Google Play, you name it. Uh, it's available on most uh, rental services online. The movie is starring and co-written by a young woman named Britt Marling. She burst onto the indie film scene at Sundance 2011. She had two different indie sci-fi projects that she co-wrote and starred in there. The first one uh, was called Another Earth. That was about a woman who's grappling with this mistake in her past. She suddenly uh, discovers, along with the rest of the world, that there's this identical Earth floating in the sky, and it presents all sorts of questions and then the second film which i actually preferred greatly to the other one is sound of my voice came out earlier this year from fox searchlight it's less overtly science fictiony it's more like a sci-fi film crossed with a detective story set in the world of religious cults uh she in this case Britt marling plays really the crucial supporting role here this woman named maggie who's the head of this group who meet in this nondescript suburban basement Uh, where she counsels them, and the two numerous members of the group uh, are secretly undercover filmmakers who are hoping to expose her as a fraud, but as they get drawn deeper and deeper into the group, they start to think maybe her story is true, and that she claims that she traveled back in time to save these people from this impending apocalypse, and though it seems outrageous on the surface, uh, they start to believe it a little bit. It's a really dark time. Every life is a death. We'll be all right, though. Maggie's taking us to a safe place. 
Why do you have a gun? It is very important that we trust each other. We're family now. I just feel like we're in over our heads. Yeah, that's investigative journalism. If you'll come with me, please, Peter. Maggie will see you. I know some people were very frustrated by the smallness of this movie. It really almost entirely takes place in this one beige carpeted basement with no furnishings i mean it is it is very low rent in that sense and i know some people didn't like the open-ended nature of the ending but i actually thought both of those things were why i liked it i mean those were both things that i would say were in the movie's favor i mean to me this is just a great example of what an indie film can do with small budget or no budget at all i mean this is a story that takes that weakness and turns it into a strength by making it about this idea of belief, you know, any person who's in a cult is there because they believe in this person that is telling them these things. And so by making this movie set in this basement where we don't see the future, we don't see any of these things we're being told, and we have to go on faith, it puts us in the position of the cult members, which I thought was a really smart way of making this movie. And the same thing about the open-ended ending here. It's like, what do you believe? I, I don't know if they're planning on making more of these movies or a TV show. Or I would, I would want to return to this world. I would want to see more movies more anything about these characters because i think they're so rich and so interesting so that sound of my voice and it's now available on you name it and it is available on it for rental my next pick is is maybe the opposite it isn't very not small <laughs> it's big and sprawling it is uh once upon a time in anatolia which is streaming on netflix directed by nuri bilga jalan i think i'm saying that right i'm sorry if i'm not it's uh who is a director who's uh, responsible for really actually some of the most like remarkable shot compositions and visuals of anyone working today, I think. But um, who's, the content of his films, I sometimes find problematic. There's sometimes they just feel almost like a parody of an art film, uh, which has always been something that's held me back watching them. But Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, I actually really love, uh, though it's a film that I have to say is incredibly not suited to streaming. It is 157 minutes long and very deliberately slow. Uh, Matt, I know that you gave this one a try too, and you, you, I watched weren't... it. Well, you, you will discuss, okay. you, you go through it, but yes, I watched it last night for yes. the first time. Okay. Um, I, you know, it's a film that actually even, I saw it for the first time at the New York Film Festival last year. And uh, it was at the time I felt like almost a little trying, but it was one that I just couldn't get off my mind afterwards. I was really haunted by it and went back and revisited it and liked it more, even more then. So it's a film that takes place over a night uh, in which a doctor is uh, traveling around with a team of police and a prosecutor and a man who has confessed to murder. They're driving around the countryside in Anatolia um, the murderer is going to show them where he buried the body, except that he was drunk at the time. So he's having trouble remembering where that is. You know, it's like in a field somewhere. It's by certain, like a tree. It's not really uh, close to any landmarks that are easy to describe, especially when he was, you know, under the influence at the time. So they, over the course of this night, they kind of drive through and they talk as they hope to find this body. Uh, and, it is in this really kind of meditative way. It is, it does seem to acquire this curious profundity. It 
it seems like it's it's almost a film equivalent of you know when you have these long nights where you seem you feel like you're almost grasping some particular truth of existence and i think like the film is very has a lot of empathy i mean the crime in question as you learn more about it over the course of the film even it seems like very uh, your understanding of it of these people kind of turns um and of the place itself you know uh, the title Once Upon a Time in Anatolia brings to mind some like Sergio Leone westerns and it's shot in cinemascope and has like some incredible incredible visuals uh, even at night because it's got a lot of these shots of like these cars winding their way through the countryside there's like hilly countryside or just like headlights on like grassy fields that really aren't like anything that don't recall anything I've really seen before. But Matt, I want to hear your experience with it. Well, it's not like I was like, I was forced to watch this movie. I was really looking forward to it yeah. and I knew it was long and I was prepared for it to be a, a very slow and deliberate film. And like, I went out of my way to like give myself a night where I was like, I had nothing else to do. I put my phone away. I put all distractions away. I gave myself over to the movie. I do agree. It is gorgeous. And, you know, even on uh, even on streaming, it's an HD stream of it on Netflix. It does look really good. The movie is gorgeous to look at. I don't know if I needed to look at quite so much of it. And I didn't feel like that the length was necessarily justified in terms of the insights that I gleaned from it. There were some things about it I liked. There were some performances I liked. There's a one particular character, uh, the prosecutor who is involved, who tells this sort of two-part story about a case that he was involved in that I thought was very interesting. Mm -hmm. But I, a lot of it, and I get that it is about sort of like the, the, the deliberate pace of, of life in this world mm. and the way that crimes, the way they get solved or not solved, as the case may be, is like so incredibly slowly. But it's interesting that you say that some of his other films felt to you like a, a parody of an art film. At times, that's what I felt like I was watching. I felt like it was almost a parody. Because See, that's it was so deliberate. Yeah, I, I, and yet, like, this feels much more human and grounded to me than his, like... Right. I'm not so yeah. I'm not so familiar with his other work, so I can't really compare it to his other films. But that just the way you described it, yeah, I thought. But look, I'm one person. I I didn't say I didn't I wouldn't say I like disliked it. Mm. I would say that it's worth seeing. But as you also said, and we'll, let's move on after this. I, I I would not necessarily recommend it on streaming. This is a tough film to yeah. watch at home, especially like on your computer. You know, you really have to shut off the world if you're going to watch this movie because it is very deliberate, it's very slow, it's very quiet. You, you you can't be checking your cell phone. You can't be checking your Twitter feed while you're doing it. So not the best film to watch on streaming. Yeah, Probably it's, it's tough. better, it's, in, it's the, a tough ask better in, the, in the theatrical world. All right. My next pick is uh, is a little bit, well, it's, I was going to say lighter, but actually it's incredibly dark as well. <laughs> but it's it's not quite as long. It's, it's a little bit more engrossing, I think. It's called Kill List. Uh, it's directed by a young man named Ben Wheatley, and this is available also on a variety of, of rental services, including uh, Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. Uh, and like Sound of My Voice, this is another film, and maybe this is a, it's time to write a think piece, Allison, we're one away. It's like sort of an interesting genre hybrid, right? It's sort of a, a hitman movie mixed with a domestic drama. And then there's some other stuff at the end that I won't spoil that's sort of from a different genre altogether. And it's about this guy who's an experienced mercenary, hitman, soldier type. Uh, he's been sort of shaken or upset by some undiscussed job in the p recent past, but he's got bills piling up, and he's got to do something. He has to provide for his family, his wife, and his, his child, so he's convinced by his partner to do one last job. 
guess what, Allison? That one last job, it doesn't go quite as planned. That's the last time. It's an awful, not an insult. No, you're just taking the piss. It's a cat, can't take the piss. (laughs) Where is it? Oh, no, Jay. It's a rabbit. Oh, put it in the outside bin. Fuck am I. We'll cook it up with some onion and garlic. No, not in my kitchen. Oh, yeah. Oh, just get rid of it, babe. Oh. Uh, as I said already, this is a very dark movie. It is disturbing in the extreme. It is violent. It is, uh, it's a little bloody. It, but even more than that, just the ideas are really disturbing. Uh, but it also it really hits you right in the gut. And it, it's kind of an awesome allegory for just sort of like the economic crisis that we've gone through in recent years in general. You know, like what is someone willing to do for their family? You know, you can say, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do this. But when... When the bills are piling up and you have to do something, what are you going to do? It's, it's a, basically, it's a movie about selling out, you know? It's a movie about uh, doing something for money and what that feels like and then what you try to do to overcompensate in the other direction when you're selling out. And again, just really disturbing and haunting. Have you seen Kill List, I Allison? have. I, I thought, I mean, like, I'd heard very good things about it. Oh, now you're going to come at, you're going to come at me now. No, I think that, like, I think it's, it's got a lot of really great pieces to it, including... Uh-huh. Some very disturbing imagery towards the end. Yes. Like, the end is really well done. Yes. Uh, and I think the combination of, like, very, de- like, deliberately ben- banal domestic dramas and then these very disturbing and violent hits uh, is, it creates for an interesting tension. And in some ways, though there there's very little I think they have in common there's almost a sense of like the, like a wicker man style like it has that it has a it like, has a touch of the wicker man a touch yes. of the wicker man not just in like some thematic things but just in how it feels like yeah. it has Tonally. Like, like things are going slightly wrong and you yes. don't understand what it is yet yeah. but oh, like no, abso- i absolutely yeah. agree I, there's definitely yeah. a little bit of that there yeah but i don't think it quite came together for me uh-huh. at the end. like it didn't like i didn't feel like a whole to me at the end uh it just felt like a lot of kind of great ideas that didn't cohere all right. Well, we'll have to see who li- we've got a real d- diverse opinion this week. We'll have Apparently. to see who the listeners side with. Do you yeah. side with Allison and, and Anatolia or Matt and Killis? They're very, <laughs> very different uh, styles very different. of film there. All right. What are our last? Uh, what's your last pick? My last pick is a doc. I wanted to throw a doc in here. Uh, it is Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is also streaming on Netflix, directed by David Gelb. And it is a portrait of Jiro Ono who is a famous sushi chef who is 85 years old. He runs a sushi restaurant that has been given three Michelin stars, which is like the kind of achievement that is given to very few restaurants in the world. Um, And particularly one that is like a 10 seat restaurant that's in a train station, which is what this is. uh, And that costs at least $300. Prices start at $300 for a person. And the meal can take as little as 15 minutes. (laughs) If you're just sitting there because yeah. he makes it's like sushi in the very like kind of most lean sense, you know, you, you get made a piece of sushi and you eat it, then another one and you eat it. You're sitting like at a at the sushi at, bar at the right sushi bar. in front of like, right he's in right front in front of, of you and he's just handing them to exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh so it's a pretty fascinating portrait of like sushi making and of very of like uh, an art that is very defined by tradition and by this pursuit of perfection you know in like sushi is 
a collection of fairly, especially the type of sushi that he makes, Jiro makes, is a collection of like very simple ingredients. So it's all just about perfection within this combination and within finding your ingredients and making them the right way. I think that this film does is really uh, a great exploration of, I mean, one, just the idea of passing this legacy along. Like, you know, there's a really interesting story in which the sons, Jiro has two sons. You're like, how do you contend with the reputation of your father, who is this great artist, you know, like, can you take over the business? Like, are you just going to be like burdened by this Mm -hmm. reputation? And then also just the idea of uh, this pursuit of artistic greatness, even within this world of sushi making, Mm -hmm. that it's this incredibly bittersweet thing in a way, because it's, it means constantly being dissatisfied. It's a really, it's a, it's a great doc, whether you're a fan of sushi or not. uh, It is, it's uh, a great portrait of someone that is Jiro dreams of sushi. It is streaming on Netflix. Yeah, that's it. Okay. We can agree on one film. I'm glad my last pick very quickly here. Is uh, This is also available on Netflix. It's a film entitled Oslo, August 31st, directed by Wa- – I'm going to guess his, la- his first name is pronounced Joachim, like Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Trier. He's actually, I think, a cousin of Lars von Trier. They are related. <laughs> uh, he's made a couple of films. This is his latest film, a very powerful – another dark movie. We've got some really dark films. Another th- potential think piece on 2012, Allison. Not a lot of brightness and sunshine amongst our picks this week. <laughs> it's about a day in the life of a 34-year-old recovering drug addict. Uh, have you seen this movie, Allison? I have not. I've seen Reprise, his earlier his previous film. And film. I've heard really good film. things about this one, but yeah. haven't seen it yet. Man, it opens with just an absolute – punch in the gut we meet this character who's our protagonist and he's in a hotel room and then he's walking he leaves and he starts walking he goes into a forest he finds a lake and there's no dialogue at all and he just fills his i don't think this is a spoiler this is the first scene of the movie fills his pockets with rocks and just walks into this lake to try to kill himself and the camera follows him without cutting and stays above the water and then we're just watching the surface of the water as seconds tick by and tick by and tick by And then finally he comes up for air. Either having decided or failed, depending on your perspective, to kill himself. And and the rest of the movie is sort of like, metaphorically, is he going to be able, is this guy going to be able to keep his head above the water, essentially? Um, he, he lives in a rehab facility. He's a recovering drug addict. And he has a job interview in Oslo that day. And so he travels into the city, and while he's waiting for the interview, he goes to meet some old friends, and then he goes to a party, and then he travels around. And even more than drug addiction or substance abuse, what it's really about is the fact that this guy is now like in his mid-30s. And even if he's sort of recovered from his addiction, he's looking around at friends who are now, you know, who he used to party with. They are married with kids and careers, and he has nothing. And it's that question of, well, at what point can you start your life over? And is there a point past which you can't? All of those questions make for a very sad film, but also, you know, a really beautiful one. I mean, it's it's a really emotional empathetic look at this character who is really suffering and and the the main performance really gets that across 
Um, so I would recommend, Allison, you see this one before top 10 list time, if you can. I know your time is, you know, time is money here, but this is a really, really good film. It's called Oslo, August 31st. It's available on Netflix. We're happy to announce that we have a new sponsor this week. It is MoviePass, which is a new subscription service in which you pay a monthly fee and then you can see a movie per day at many major theaters. You check in using an app on your smartphone and you use a membership card and it works uh, for any new release, though it doesn't cover 3D or IMAX yet. Uh, I've been using mine, Allison. We we both got them. Have you gotten a chance to try yours out yet? Not yet. Okay. Well, I've used mine several times and it works great. If you're a frequent moviegoer or you know a frequent moviegoer, movie pass is a service that could make a lot of sense to you rather than paying per ticket you just pay that flat fee for the month and that will get you your entry into one film per day so you no longer need to feel guilty for shelling out (laughs) to see breaking dawn part two for the third time i don't know why anyone would feel guilty i'd be proud but nevertheless (laughs) if you wanted to see breaking dawn 30 times in 30 days you would just have to pay that one flat monthly and, fee. you know it would probably come out very affordably if, <laughs> <laughs> but um, movie pass is currently invite only but uh you know we've got you hooked up so uh they're currently offering a limited number of subscriptions to film spotting and film spotting svu listeners including 30 day 90 day and year-long gift packages for the holidays uh, you can check out moviepass.com slash film spotting for more info and to get ten dollars off the second month of your subscription Just gotta go get him and get him back here where he's safe. I didn't see how I could not document him as a U.S. citizen. We had no idea what kind of person we were getting. They look very different. He disappeared without a trace three years ago. Tonight, a San Antonio boy is back home. When a child is missing for years, either the child is dead or the child is not found. He was tortured. I mean, he had torture written on. This kid's really messed up. There was just something wrong about it. Something was being hidden, and I didn't know what that was. Our listener's choice pick this episode is The Imposter, which is available on VOD and iTunes. Directed by Bart Layton in his feature directorial debut, Layton is, uh, interestingly, the creator and executive producer of the reality show Locked Up Abroad. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's about you know travelers who end up getting arrested while in foreign countries for various things. Makes a lot of sense, actually, in uh, just in kind Stylistically, of how it, yeah, it yeah. influences this. The Imposter is a film about Frédéric Bourdain, who is a French con man who, in a series of extraordinary coincidences and developments in 1997 ends up impersonating Nicholas Barclay, who is a San Antonio boy who disappeared in 1994 when he was uh, 14 years old or 13 years old. Uh, Bourdain has a history of faking his identity and passing himself off as a kid when, at the time of this incident, he was already 23 years old. But that's not the only problem and the only thing that makes it such a great and incredible story. Nicholas was blonde and blue-eyed. Bourdain has brown eyes and brown hair and an accent. Uh, and oh yes, he was in Spain at the time that they he kind of tried to pass himself off as this kid he turned up. Uh, the, this name, basically, is all he knew in Texas. But Barclay's family, his mother, his sister, they take him in they take this kid in they go to retrieve him from spain and take him in without question this european man with a growth of beard passing himself off as a blonde teenager the film uses 
home movie footage, newsreel footage, and some really interestingly staged reenactments to tell this story. But the heart of the film are really its interviews, particularly the ones with Bourdain, the ones with Nicholas's mother, Beverly Dollarhide, his sister, Carrie Gibson, also Nancy Fisher, the FBI agent who handled the case, and Charlie Parker, who is a private investigator who just basically got caught up and was the one who was like, really? (laughs) This is really happening? Um, But as the film goes along, uh, all of these people start to seem like different degrees of unreliable or biased narrators uh, as the details come out. So Matt, my first question for you is what you thought of Bourdain, because he is relating this kind of incomprehensible action, uh, and he is the central figure of the film. Did you find him just creepy throughout or did you ever find him sympathetic? Because he talks a little bit about his motivations and that he says that they're coming from a kind of tr- like a troubled past. Yeah. It, this may not, that's not a really a fair question for me to answer because I, uh, knowing a little bit around the events of the film, I had heard about him and I've heard that apparently people who like, write re- negative reviews of him in uh, about this movie like if they say that he's a con man or he's a terrible person he's taken to twitter to attacking them and saying <laughs> horrible things for all i know after he hears this he may attack us so i, I found him hard to say after hearing that and his sort of lack of remorse in that sense and in the movie in general for the most part I didn't necessarily find him a sympathetic figure. I found him a fascinating figure for sure, and it is a fascinating and unbelievable story in so many ways. But uh, I don't know if I ever sympathized with him. Did you? Were you sympathizing with him? No, I mean, he is fascinating, though. I really, like, it's his, like, incredibly disturbing approach and kind of aura that I think is one of the things that makes this movie so interesting, Mm -hmm. is that, like he talks about having basically going in search of the childhood he he never got like the loving right. childhood he never got right and there is something really poignant about the idea of that that you could basically somehow be like i want to start over i'm going to pass myself off as a 14 year old sure so that i can be a kid again yes and, you know and I, I do appreciate that but he is on screen like very creepy really yeah. like he as he talks very openly about i think and especially given that his english is like a little off when he says that part about talking to the sister uh and talking about how he's nicholas and he says i washed her brain which i thought was just like you know <laughs> really uh memorable yeah. and uh a tough to kind of deal with approach or just thing to say but I, I, what did you think of the way that the film matches up the reenactments? Because I thought it was one of the things I thought it did really well is it has a lot of reenactments, sometimes using Bourdain, but it also matches the, them up so that there's sometimes people are speaking or lip syncing essentially yes. along to an interview. Right. So Bourdain or someone else will be talking and then we'll see the actor in the reenactment lip syncing their words. You know, we don't hear their voices. We don't hear the actor's voices. We hear the real people's voices coming out of the actor's mouths. And this is something I think, yeah, we could talk about is the reac- reenactments, which I, I, they certainly fit thematically because, as we've said, this is a movie about a guy who pretended to be someone else and who had a history of passing himself off as other people playing other roles um 
here everyone we see on screen is played by two people themselves and then the actors in the reenactment so i think that's very interesting and i actually do think that the lip syncing is another interesting sort of thematic element because you do have someone playing bourdain we hear his voice and it's sort of like how many levels of 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 people playing other people is there so that's an actor playing bourdain who's playing nicholas but it's bourdain's (laughs) real voice uh, that's all kind of – that's very interesting stuff. I will say sometimes – like you can – I can make the argument thematically for the reenactment. Sometimes I have a hard time making them – making the argument for them like viscerally. They felt mm. a little slow and sluggish to me. They look nice. Yeah. They're really beautiful. They were shot very beautifully with obviously like high-end equipment or at least a high-end cinematographer who could make it look really good. But sometimes I felt a little bit like I was watching like a really high-end episode of Unsolved Mysteries, you know? And this could have been an Unsolved Mystery episode. And sometimes I almost felt like I might want to see that version because it would have been a little quicker, a little snappier, a little pulpier. Um, There were times when I I felt like the movie was kind of – pontificating or dawdling a little bit you have this like amazing crime story you know or this amazing mystery and i almost felt like it the and reenactments to some degree almost did like a little bit of a disservice to it it just sort of it was like i was like in a fog almost i I wanted it to sort of like grab me and and sometimes the the reenactments sort of kept pushing me away instead of pulling me in Mm. that was sort of how i felt now towards the end of the movie there's sort of a twist maybe not a twist but there's a development in the case let's say and at that moment, I really got really interested. And sort of the ending of the movie, the last like 20, 30 minutes of the movie, I think are fantastic. Yeah. But I will say that sort of in the middle there, some of the re- – I mean the, because all these – it's not just reenactments. They're sort of like glacial, like super slow-mo reenactments. Uh, cameras slowly zooming in on something or pulling out or tracking side to side. And I, it just – it was kind of a lulling effect on me that I, I – I wanted to be grabbed more. Yeah. I I actually liked the reenactments. I there definitely there's a lot of the Errol Morris then Blue Line mm-hmm. uh influence to that. And I think I mean like as has influenced a lot of true crime kind of or re, uh documentaries dealing with these crimes. Mm-hmm. But I I think for the most part they worked for me because Beyond the way, the trick of having the the vocals and the interviews bleed in. I mean, there's one moment in particular where audio that we've already heard, we understand who said it, you know, and yes. that's done. It's so creepy the way it's done. Yes. It like gave me goosebumps. Yes. But I think that uh, it does. What I liked about the reenactments, I mean, as, as they were a little ponderous, I, I still think that they they're so deliberately subjective that I think that they, they foreshadow that final twist Mm -hmm. in terms of tone Mm -hmm. before we ever get there, Mm -hmm. you know, that we, we are reminded that we are seeing different people's accounts and that they have, they have their own biases and that they have their own agenda that they're pushing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, there are two scenes in particular that I think also called up the weirdness of what was going on. Um, and using like, there's the part where they play the Doobie Brothers song and there's the part where they play Queen Bitch, uh, um, David Bowie. And both of those, I think, put you a little more in that mindset of being like, yes, here's a 20 something guy uh, from, you know, European guy who is suddenly now in texas and leading this like been dropped right into this incredibly american life yeah you know and he's getting on a school bus and he's about to go to high school like that there's something that i think 
it got to in these representations of that that it did really well mm-hmm. uh rather than just telling this story it, every once in a while really got into that mindset of like what would it actually be like if you were you like literally you took this life this this guy's life that had pro- you know been cut short and just jumped back into it yeah yeah there's i mean there is some interesting things there about the as you said like the subjective nature of this i mean it's almost like a rashomon story in some ways because these people are saying this is what happened and we were totally fooled and you know and then other people are saying well no you weren't because clearly xyz you know we don't want to get into it but we're sitting there in the audience going how is as you said like how could anyone be fooled by this guy who he creates this absurd story that you know on the surface anyone would be skeptical about he claims that he you know there's this huge massive conspiracy he was, military officials yeah this huge military conspiracy his he was tortured he was abused he you know he his they gave him eye drops to change his eye color they made him not speak english right that's and that's, how he has an accent that's why he, this kid from texas suddenly has a french accent and you know it's not just the family at first you know people go along with it and i think there is an interesting aspect to the fact that we're sitting there in the audience um thinking well i would not believe this and how could anyone believe this as we're listening to these people you know very sincerely explain their reasons and and insist that they you know it wasn't that they knew they didn't know you know and, and we might think well they just wanted someone to replace their son and they claim no we really thought he was he was real now whether or not they're in denial that we could discuss but i it's interesting how the end of the film, I think, not only pulls the rug out from under the story, but I think pulls the rug out from under us and creates this scenario where we are put into a position to to start to understand that family better than we had before because their story seems so implausible. And at the end of the movie, we have done a similar – it's so hard to talk about without spoiling it. Yeah. But we've been given a story. And we wa- we believe it because we want to believe it. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Do you yes. kind of understand what I'm saying? Yes. That's how. That's sort of how it all comes full circle. Is that this actual development in the case and the way that Leighton presents it in the film gives us the chance to feel what that's like to really want to believe something and perhaps to delude yourself into believing it until you make it true. Which I thought was was really you know super super smart and super super interesting. How formally he does that using all these different tricks yeah i think that's a really good point and uh i mean it don't want to go into what happens in the the latter yes, part it's of very the difficult to talk it is about really here. difficult but like that i mean it's a new film i think no you we don't want to check it out yes, and like yes. uh but it it definitely also it deals with the ways in which you make assumptions based on also who is the victim in the story you know and i think that that's also the case in the story that Bourdain tells, right? He tells the story of grotesque, uh, like terrible things happening to him. He was, he and all these other boys were, you know, being uh, sexually abused. It was this terrible situation. And part of the reason that that story works is because it's so, I think, over the top that it becomes, you would be monstrous to question it, right? right. And you, who would just invent a story like who, this? It's yeah, so like what kind of terrible person would right. like, you know, think of all of these things and use them? Yeah. But that, you know, that it, because, um, like, our instinct is to to want to kind of, like, protect or shelter something, you know, like, that. that in many ways, I think the film kind of makes you 
think about your assumptions about victimization in that way, because like it's nothing turns out to be so straightforward uh, and that it it really shakes you up. Like the really the last half hour is very disturbing uh, in many ways. And, you know, beyond the fact that like you have this whole story being told by someone who is disturbing himself like he is someone who oh he's gonna write you such a missive on twitter well, i think he says at the believe. he says at the end i care about myself just about myself you know oh, and that's you his are, like you final, are in for it that's i'm you know prepared <laughs> um i'm not going to be bullied into <laughs> by by the the subject of this film um no but i think that like i mean that he is someone who's disturbing in those interviews you yeah. know I think I don't. Is it a great, great film? I'm not sure it gets quite there. I think it's yeah. a very good film. I think it's an incredible story. I think it's absolutely worth seeing. Uh, is it going to be on my top ten list? Probably not. Yeah. I don't know about you. No, I don't think it will. But I, I, I do really appreciate it. Yeah, it absolutely. And I'm glad very, I saw it. It's worth. It's very worth a look. Absolutely. So that is the imposter, and it is available now on VOD and iTunes. Okay, we close things out with Behind the Eight Ball, in which we give you a rapid-fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming, two that are expiring soon, and one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queues. Matt, are you ready? I am ready. All right, three new picks. We picked all new films for our new releases this week, just to keep with our theme. So first up, I've got Something from Nothing, The Art of Rap. This is available now on Netflix. It's the directorial debut of Ice-T. It's a documentary about the history and craft of hip-hop, which... As you know, Allison, I'm an expert on. Uh, next up, I've got The Russian Winter, another music documentary. This one's available on iTunes and Amazon Instant. I saw this film and really liked it at the Tribeca Film Festival. Didn't get a lot of attention, but it's an interesting little film. It's about this guy named John Forte. He worked for years with the Fugees. He was a producer and writer on their big album, The Score. Um, he later got busted smuggling cocaine. Oops. He went to jail for several years. Now he's out. And it follows him sort of, you know, not entirely unlike Oslo, August 31st. It's about him kind of picking up the pieces of his life. He's now, you know, out of jail and trying to make something of himself again, get his music career back on track. And this is about his tour through Russia, where he's meeting Russian artists and collaborating with them. It's a really interesting and actually really beautifully shot documentary. Last up, I've got The Color Wheel, also available on iTunes and Amazon Instant. This was um, voted the best undistributed film of 2011 in IndieWire and Village Voices polls, both film critic polls. Now it's uh, available to download at home. I definitely recommend it. It's by... uh, Alex Ross Perry, a guy I used to work with at Kim's Video, actually. It's mm-hmm. his second film. It's this very funny but also kind of disturbing movie about two siblings on a road trip. So that's The Color Wheel, available on iTunes and Amazon Instant. Okay, two expiring films. Okay, first up, I have one I'd never heard of before, but I'm intrigued, and I have until December 7th to watch it on Netflix. It's called Shadows and Lies. Anything, Allison? Shadows and Lies? It's a 2010 film starring James Franco, Julianne Nicholson, and Josh Lucas. Wow. Uh, Yes, I've never heard of it, so it must be amazing. (laughs) Uh, Franco uh, plays a man who returns to New York to try to save the woman he loved from organized criminals. That's the Netflix description. These criminals, Allison, are highly organized. Absolutely. Yeah, okay, so that's Shadows and Lies, available until December 7th. Available until December 9th on Netflix is the surfing documentary from 2003, Step Into Liquid, directed by Dan Brown, the son of Bruce Brown, who directed the great classic surfing doc, The Endless Summer. Another thing I'm an expert on, (laughs) Hip-hop and surfing, Allison. I've always uh, said that about you. Yes, if there's two things I know, it's hip-hop and surfing. No, I don't know anything about any of those things, but I, that's why I like these documentaries. I like learning about these subjects that I don't know anything about. I actually do like surfing docs. They're beautiful, They're right? They're gorgeous. They're just yeah. gorgeous. And Step into Liquid is really one of the most beautiful. 
All right, and one from your queue. You gave me number 31, and this week that is Redline 7000. This is one of Howard Hawks' final films. It's about stock car racers. It stars James Caan and a pre-Star Trek George Takai. Wow, that's quite a combination. Yes, Redline 7000. That's available on Netflix. All right, are you ready for your countdown, Allison? I am ready. All right, let's start with three new releases. Okay, uh, these are all new to Netflix. I'm having a very Netflix-heavy episode. But uh, the first one is The Invisible War. It is Kirby Dick's documentary about rape in the military. It's very well done, if incredibly difficult to watch. It's just brutal. It's a good so, film, though. Yeah, grab a lot of tissues if you're if you're going to watch it. Next is Bernie, uh, which is directed by Richard Linklater. This is really the year's indie sleeper hit. Uh, Jack Black plays a small town Texas mortician who becomes a companion of a cranky, wealthy older widow played by Shirley MacLaine. It's got a very fun, funny Matthew McConaughey in it, and it uses is the inhabitants of the town in interviews as this kind of Greek chorus narrating the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, Take This Waltz, which we talked about in a past episode, episode nine of SVU, actually. Sarah Polly's film uh, about a love triangle. Uh, Michelle Williams plays a young woman torn between her kind husband, played by Seth Rogen, and an <gasps> the artist. dreamy... Rickshaw driver. And the artist and rickshaw driver played mm. by Luke Kirby. Mm, I'm getting chills just <laughs> thinking about him in that rickshaw. So those are all uh, now streaming on Netflix. Okay. Two expiring titles. Okay. Expiring on December 7th. If you want, it's a terrible film, but if you want a curiosity, Sarah Palin, The Undefeated. Oh. Uh, yes. If you, it amounts to basically a feature length ad for a presidential campaign that never happened. But it's interesting in that Palin gave the film her blessing. It's adoring of her but she didn't participate in it so she's this weird absence in the film that they kind of make do with like her audiobook as narration and news huh. footage so uh, that's expiring from Netflix on December 7th expiring on December 16th is Sin Nombre which is uh, director Carrie Fukunaga's directorial debut a thriller about uh, different people from Central America who've hopped a train to ride to the US border and uh, he's you know since gone on to uh, like a pretty promising director uh, directorial career so uh, if you want to watch his first film that is expiring on December 16th okay and one from your queue so you also gave me number 31 and uh yeah you picked uh, an embarrassing one which is <laughs> the vampire diaries <laughs> the cw show about vampires and werewolves in mystic falls virginia i've watched most of the first season i have to admit but uh just mo- just the first season yeah i don't know how many seasons are at right now okay. it's currently running but yeah okay so i'll let you know if any exciting how's that one compare happen- with true blood which i know you've also watched I, I mean, really, just one has one is like wilder and has more sex and nudity because it's on HBO. Right. But they're both basically insane supernatural melodramas. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's uh, I'm not proud. It's uh, Vampire Diaries. OK, you know? well, there you go. <laughs> All right, it's time to go through our next episode's Listener's Choice Options. We're going to do three more new titles because it is that time of the year. You know, this is all we're talking about. Um, so let's do one more like this, at least, um, before we get to the end of the year. Our first option is a film I'm really looking forward to seeing. It will be available on Netflix Instant starting on December 4th. It is entitled Alps, and it is the follow-up film to Dogtooth by director Yorgos Lanthimos. He uh, was, I believe, the Film Spotting Golden Brick Award winner for Dogtooth uh, with that film. So this is, uh, this is a, a film near and dear to the hearts of Film Spotting Nation. The synopsis of this one is, Four people offer an unusual service. They take on the role of a deceased loved one to help the bereaved family find closure. 
but one member of the group travels deeper into this distortion of reality after a 16-year-old tennis player dies. Sounds like it could be a great double feature with the imposter, Allison. Yeah, seriously. Um, um, I, I was a big Dogtooth fan. I was too. We both loved it. Both loved it. Uh, Alps didn't get quite as strong a reception, but still very much looking forward to seeing it. So that's option number one. Allison, what's option number two? Option number two is The Hole, which is now on Hulu. It's I mean, technically, I suppose this is a 2012 film because it got it got kind of an odd long release, but it was originally premiered in 2009. Uh, American fantasy horror film uh, directed by Joe Dante, the great Joe Dante, of course, of Gremlins, Piranha, The Howling. Uh, it stars Terry Polo, Chris Massoglia, whatever, and Haley Bennett. Uh, but it's about a pair of brothers who move to a small town from New York and discover this mysterious hole in the basement that uh, from which bad things come. So uh, this was, I think, originally it was a 3D movie, but obviously Hulu does not have it in those dimensions. We'll watch but it we'll while watch blinking it. our eyes very quickly to exactly. simulate 3D effects. But, uh, you know, Joe Dante is a really... Uh, great filmmaker so yes. interested to see his his latest definitely work. definitely okay and what's the last pick our last pick is a documentary it is entitled how to survive a plague which is available now on itunes and vod the film is directed by david france this is supposed to be an amazing documentary it's about the well i'll just read from the official description from the uh, distributor story of the brave young men and women who successfully reversed the tide of an epidemic demanded the attention of a fearful nation and stopped aids from becoming a death sentence and this is supposed to be a really powerful documentary about that very subject uh, supposedly has incredible uh, vintage footage from the period, uh, newsreels and home movies and all that sort of thing. Haven't seen this one yet. This is another one we definitely need to watch before the end of the year. It's going to probably be a lot of people's picks for best documentary of the year. Yeah, so uh, I haven't seen it yet. Allison I hasn't seen not, it either. I have not, but I've heard nothing but good things. Yeah, we've got, we're running out of time to see these movies, so we definitely need to see that one as well. So that's How to Survive a Plague, and that's available on VOD and iTunes. Which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Uh, you can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, December 10th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will come out at, at or around Monday, December 17th. Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Allison on Twitter, at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. Or you can follow the show at, at FilmSpottingSVU, and that's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice. And where we've been sharing more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners, for Film Spotting. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>